Hi, and welcome to the podcast from 1914 to 1918war.com. Uh, this episode brings us up to chapter 9 of our reading of Bruce Bairns' father's Bullets and Billets. I really hope you're enjoying this reading. It's certainly keeping me entertained. Right, let's get on with chapter 9. Everything you hold very vile is at stake. Du hast uns starke Berührung mit der See, wenn wir dem für uns möglichen weltumspannenden Geistgenau von Gewinn. Chapter 9. Souvenirs, a ride to Nieppe, tea at HQ, trenches once more. A couple of days after Christmas, we left for Billets. These two days were of a very peaceful nature, but not quite so enthusiastically friendly as the day itself. The Germans could be seen moving about in their trenches, and one felt quite at ease sitting on top of our parapet or strolling about the fields behind our lines. It was during these two days that I managed to get a German rifle that I had had my eye on for a month. It lay out in the open, near one or two corpses between our trenches and theirs. And until this Christmas truce arrived, the locality was not a particularly attractive one to visit. Had I fixed an earlier date for my exploit, the end of it would most probably have been a battered second lieutenant's cap and a rusty revolver hanging up in the ingle nook of Herr someone or other's country home in East Prussia. As it was, I was able to walk out and return with the rifle unmolested. When we left the trenches to go out this time, I took the rifle along with me. After my usual perilous equestrian act, I got back to the transport farm and having performed the usual routine of washing, shaving, eating and drinking, blossomed forth into our four days rest again. The weather was splendid. I went out for walks in the fields, rehearsed the machine gun section in their drill and conducted cheery sort of squire of the village conversations with the farmer who owned our farm. At this period, most of my pals in the regiment used to go into Armentier or Bayeux and get a breath of civilised life. I often wished I felt as they did, but I had just the opposite desire. I felt that to adequately stick out what we were going through, it was necessary for me to keep well in the atmosphere and not to let any exterior influence upset it. I was annoyed at having to take up this line, but somehow or other I had a feeling that I could not run the war business with a spot of civilization in it. Personally, I felt that rather than leave our trenches for our periodic rests, I would rather have stayed there all the time consecutively until I could stick it out no longer. During this after-Christmas rest, however, I so far relapsed from these views as to decide to go into Nieppe to get some money from the field cashier. That was my first fall, but my second was even more strange. In a truculent tone, I said I would ride. Smith, go and tell Parker to get my horse ready. It just shows how reckless warfare makes one. A beautiful fine still afternoon, I started off. Enormous success. I walked and trotted along past all sorts of wagons, lorries, guns and dispatch riders. Nearly decided to take up hunting when the time came for me to settle in England once more. However, as I neared the outskirts of Nieppe and saw the flood of interlacing traffic, I decided to leave well alone to tie this quadruped of mine up to some outlying hostelry and walk the short remaining distance into the town where the cashier had his office. I found a suitable place and, letting myself down to the ground, strode off with a stiff, bandy-legged action to the office. 
Having got my hundred francs all right, I made the best of my short time on earth by walking about and having a good look at the town. A squalid, uninteresting place, Nyep. A dirty red brick town with a good sprinkling of factory chimneys and orange peel, rather the same tone as one of the potteries towns in England. Completing my tour, I returned to the horse, and finally, stiff but happy, I glided to the ground in the yard of the transport farm. Encouraged by my success, I rode over to dinner one night with one of the companies in the battalion, which was in billets about a mile and a half away. Riding home along the flat, winding, waterlogged lane by the light of the stars, I nearly started off on the poetry lines again, but I got home just in time. During these rests from the trenches, I was sometimes summoned to brigade headquarters, where the arch-machine gunner dwelt. He was a captain of much engineering skill, who supervised the entire machine gun outfit of the brigade. New men were being perpetually trained by him, and I was sent for, on occasion, to discuss the state and strength of my section or any new scheme that might be on hand. This going to brigade headquarters meant putting on a clean bib, as it were, for it was here that the brigadier himself lived, and after a machine gun seance it was generally necessary to have tea in the farm with the brigade staff. I am little or no use on these social occasions, a red and gold mailed fist of a general staff reduces me to a sort of pulverised state of meekness which ends in my smiling at everyone and declining anything to eat. As machine gun officer to our battalion, I had to go through it. And as everyone was very nice to me, it all went off satisfactorily. On this time out, we were wondering how we should find the Bosch on our return and pleasant recollections of the time before filled us with a curious keenness to get back and see. A wish like this is easily gratified at the front, and soon, of course, the day came to go into the trenches again, and in we went. That's the end of chapter 9. I hope you're enjoying this reading from 1914 to 1918war.com. If you could leave a review and subscribe, that would be really helpful and get the message out to other people. Looking forward to seeing you on the next episode. Ta-da! Hi and welcome to the latest podcast episode from 1914 to 1918war.com. This episode brings us up to chapter 10 of Bruce Bairn's father's memoirs of life in the trenches, Bullets and Billets. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Chapter 10. My partial escape from the mud. The deserted village. My cottage. Our next time up after our Christmas Day experiences were full of incident and adventure. During the peace which came upon the land around the 25th of December, we had, as I mentioned before, been able to stroll about in an altogether unprecedented way. We had had the courage to walk into the mangled old village just behind our frontline trenches and examine the ruins. I had never penetrated into this gloomy wreck of a place, even at night until after Christmas. It had just occasionally caught our attention as we looked back from our trenches, mutilated and deserted, a dirty skeleton of what had once been a small village, very small, about twelve small houses and a couple of farms. Anyway, during this time after Christmas, we started thinking out plans, and in a few days we heard that it had been decided to put some men into the village and hold it as a second line. The platoon commander with whom I lived happened to be the man selected to have charge of the men in the village. Consequently, one night he left our humble trench and, together with his servant and small belongings from the dugout, went off to live somewhere in the village. About this time the conditions under which we lived were very poor. 
the cold and rain were exceedingly severe, and altogether physical discomfort was at its height. When my stable companion had gone, I naturally determined to pay him a call the next night, and to see what sort of place he'd managed to get to live in. I well remember the next night. It was the first on which I realised the chances of a change of life presented by the village, and this was the start of two months' village life for me. I went off from our old trench after dusk on my usual round of machine guns. When this was over, I struck off back across the field behind our trench to the village and waded up what had been the one and only street. Out of the dozen mangled wrecks of houses, I didn't know which one my pal had chosen as his residence, so I went along the shell-mutilated, waterlogged road, peering into this ruin and that, until, at the end of the street, about 400 yards from the Germans and 200 yards from our own trenches, I came across a damp and dark figure lurking in the shadows. Alt, who goes there? Friend. Pass, friend, all's well. The sentry, evidently posted at the end of the village. I got a tip from him as to my friend's new dwelling place. I say, sentry, which house does Mr Hudson live in? That small and down t'other end on left, sir. Thanks. I went back along the deserted ruin of a street, and at the far end on the left I saw the dim outline of a small cottage, almost intact it appeared, standing about five yards back from the road. This was the place the sentry meant right enough, and in I went at a hole in the plaster wall, the front door, having apparently stopped something or other previously, was conspicuous by its absence. All was dark. I groped my way round to the back, stumbling over various bits of debris on the ground, until I found the opening into what must be the room where Hudson had elected to live. Not a light showed anywhere, which was as it should be, for a light would easily be seen by the Bosch not far away, and if they did see one there would be trouble. I came to an opening covered with an old sack, Pulling this a little to one side, I was greeted with a volume of suffocating smoke. I proceeded further, and diving in under the sack, got inside the room. In the midst of the smoke, sitting beside a crushed and battered fire bucket, sat a man, his face illuminated by the flickering light from the fire. The rest of the room was bathed in mysterious darkness. Where's Mr Hudson? I asked. He's out having a look at the barbed wire in front of the village, I think, sir. But he'll be back soon, as this is where he stays now. I determined to wait and to fill in the time, started to examine the cottage. It was the first house I'd been into in the firing line, and an unsavoury wreck of a place it was. It gave one a delightful feeling of comfort to sit on the stone-flagged floor and look upon four perforated walls and a shattered roof. The worst possible house in the world would be an improvement on any of those dugouts we had in the trenches. The front room had been blown away, leaving a back room and a couple of lean-tos, which opened out from it. An attic under the thatched roof, with all one end knocked out, completed the outfit. The outer and inner walls were all made of that stuff known as wattle and daub, sort of earth-like plaster worked into and around hurdles. A bullet would, of course, go through walls of this sort like butter, and so they had, for on examining the outer wall on the side which faced the Germans, I found it looking like the top of a pepper pot for holes. A sound as of a man trying to waltz with a cream separator suggested to my mind that someone had tripped and fallen over that mysterious obstacle outside, which I had noticed on entering, and presently I heard Hudson's voice cursing through the sack doorway. He came in and saw me examining the place. "'Hullo, you're here too, are you?' he exclaimed. "'Are you going to stay here as well?' "'I don't know yet,' I replied. 
It doesn't seem a bad idea, as I have to walk around all of the guns the whole time. All I can and have to do is to hitch up in some central place, and this is just as central as that rotten trench I've just come from. Of course it is, he replied. If I were you, I'd come along and stay with me, and go to all your places from here. If an attack comes, you'll be able to get from one place to another much easier than if you're stuck in that trench. You'd never be able to move from there when an attack and bombardment had started. Having given the matter a little further consideration, I decided to move from my dugout to this cottage. So I left the village and went back across the field to the trench to see to the necessary arrangements. I got back to my lair and shouted for my servant. Here, Smith, I said. I'm going to fix up one of the houses in the village. This place of ours here is no more central than the village. And any one of those houses is a damn sight better than this clay hole here. I want you to collect all my stuff and bring it along. I'll show you the way. So presently, all my few belongings having been collected, we set out for the village. That was my last of that fearful trench. A worse one I know could not be found. My new life in the village now started, and I soon saw that it had its advantages. For instance, there was a slight chance of fencing off some of the rain and water. But my knowledge of front by this time was such that I knew that there were corresponding disadvantages, and my instinct told me that the village would present a fresh crop of dangers and troubles quite equal to those of the trench, though slightly different in style. I had now started off on my two-month sojourn in the village of Saint-Yvon. That wraps up chapter 10. I hope you're enjoying this reading from 1914 to 1918war.com. Please hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. And thanks for joining me for this episode. See you next time.